So last week there was a bake sale after the service, and you ate lots of baked goods and you gave money to um, a work in Haiti near Port-au-Prince called Rivers of Hope Orphanage, sponsored by All God's Children International, and you gave close to $700, $700. Thank you. And it's, it's, through, it's Harvest Kids who wanted to um, support a $35 gift monthly to the orphanage, and so they, they way overshot that. So thank you so much for your generosity. Today we're going to answer the question that's been burning in your hearts all week. You want to know what question's been burning in your hearts all week? How do we correct someone who opposes the truth? Are you up for that? Uh, not only do they oppose the truth, they just want to argue and incite controversy. So just in case you've had that on your heart, um, we're going to talk about that. And what we've been, we're going to see it in 2 Timothy. We've been working our way through, through 2 Timothy. And, and where we are in this letter, the purpose of the letter is Paul, the apostle, is in prison. And he's about to be executed, so he knows his time is short. So he's uh, writing this letter to Timothy, his primary disciple, to take on his work in, in the city of Ephesus. And he's um, there have been some who are teaching, spreading some false teaching and creating controversies in the midst. So he's trying to help Timothy, how do you deal with these people? In contrast to the false teachers and those who are stirring up quarrels, uh, last time we were in Second Timothy a couple weeks ago, in, in chapter 2, verse 14, uh, Timothy is to be a, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the, the word of truth. So Timothy is supposed to accurately handle God's word. Paul illustrated this um, being a God-approved worker by using the imagery of honorable and dishonorable vessels in a house. So vessels meaning like, pots and, and plates and, and containers. So he says you can either be a, a, an honorable vessel or you can be a, a dishonorable vessel. And uh, what he's saying, so basically we have dinnerware that's, that's honorable, that serves guests, and we have uh, containers that are for handling junk and for trash and garbage. So you can be either one of those. So ch choose which way you, you want to be honorable or dishonorable in, in, the, in God's household. And Paul says to Timothy in, in verses 21 and 22, if, if 20 and 21, if anyone cleanses himself from false teaching or useless word battles or other ungodliness, he will be a vessel for honor. Set apart as holy, useful for serving Jesus our master, ready for every good work. So how can Timothy be a vessel for honor? That's what Paul's talking about. And we'll explore that in uh, chapter 2, verses 22 through 26. So we're going to read that passage and ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Timothy chapter 2, verses 22 to 26. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, 
correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit, who authored your word, to cause your word to be alive and powerful to us this morning, to pierce through issues that we have in our lives that are not truth-oriented, but buried under falsehood and controversy. We ask you would give us wisdom, Father, how we can deal with issues of falsehood and controversy in our families, in our church, and in our circles of influence. We ask that we would be honorable to Christ in how we manage these things, how we deal with them. And so help us to understand, Father, give us your spirit again to teach us this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So in verse 22, Paul again is answering, so Timothy, if you if you want to be of honorable use for the Lord, he says you need to do three things. You need to be fleeing some things, you need to be pursuing some things, and you need to be avoiding certain things. So first of all, he says flee youthful passions. And you might right away think, well, he's talking about sexual immorality. And of course your mind goes there, but it it doesn't of course he he would want Timothy to not be engaging in those things but i think in the context what he's talking about more likely is not just that kind of thing but um not being eager to quarrel about useless things being too ready to hear teaching that claims to be new and innovative um and and so not to be t- leaning toward those things not to be uh, unkind not to be harsh so that's what he's saying to Timothy and he said, instead, pursue righteousness. Rather than being eager to quarrel and get in useless arguments, uh, pursue righteous living according to God's word. Pursue faith or faithfulness to God's word. Pursue love, because that's what God is, wants for us in, anyway. He wants us to love and do good for people. And pursue peace, that is the stability of mind and emotions that we have in Christ. In um, um lack of hostility toward others, not getting involved in useless quarrels. And he says, do this with others who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Do this with others who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. That phrase simply means with those who follow Jesus, those who trust and identify with the Lord Jesus, because uh, there were those in his midst who were claiming to follow Jesus, but who were not calling upon him from a pure heart, who had other agendas. Their hearts were not truly his. And so this is what we are to do as a church family, to be uh, living together. We're supposed to pursue peace, love, righteousness with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart and not self-serving agendas, not um, with those who did not truly trust and treasure Christ, who are trusting in their own pseudo-spirituality. They like to win arguments, proving themselves that they were among the spiritual elite. So useless quarreling and and unsound teaching and pursue love and gently and godly living with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So pursue those things. Pursue what is good in God's sight. And then in verse 23, he says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Have nothing to do with avoid, reject ignorant controversies. Those who love to argue imagine they had deeper insights and superior knowledge. But in reality, they, um, the, the controversies were foolish and based on ignorance of the truth. 
like it says in Proverbs, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Have you ever noticed that? Some people just, they, they take no delight in really understanding what's going on. They don't really want to enter into a conversation. They just want to express their own opinion. There's lots of that going on. Paul isn't saying Timothy should avoid dealing with hard subjects, which may be controversial. He's not saying you never deal with hard, controversial subjects. Because in the next verse, he, he tells Timothy to correct the truth opponents. So clearly, he isn't telling Timothy to avoid all conflict and disagreement. So what does he mean? What is he saying to Timothy? He means don't get distracted and immersed in controversies that, that the Word of God doesn't clearly address. So don't, don't just get involved in useless controversies that, the, that God's Word isn't meant to answer. Or uh, that have been difficult to understand throughout church history. Don't get sucked into debates that you know are going to give birth to, to, to fights. Even if the subject is dealt with in God's Word, even if God's Word does speak to it, um, some people are only interested in, in winning an argument. They're not interested in better understanding the, the Scriptures. Their mind is made up. They will happily engage in useless and, and destructive quarreling. So, for example, uh, how about this question? How could a good God allow there to be evil? Or another question that people love to debate over. If God is sovereign over all, how can he hold us responsible for our choices? People have debated these issues for centuries. It's possible to have helpful discussions about these things. You can have a good discussion about these and, and get some biblical insight into them, even though it's hard to get the ultimate answer from the, from the Scripture. But um, <clears throat> some people will only get into useless quarrels over questions like these. So how do we deal with those who incite quarrels? We deal with them as servants of the Lord, Paul says, and then we see that in verse 24. He says, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. So he, he calls Timothy the servant of the Lord, and that's a title that carries over from the Old Testament. Moses and the prophets often had that title. They were called the Lord's servant. Um, Paul calls himself that. So why does Paul pick this title out for Timothy? And why does he say this is who you are to be in this situation? Because if you're going to correct truth opponents, you are serving the Lord, not yourself. It's not like your agenda versus their agenda. It's the Lord's agenda that matters, and that's set by his word. In confronting such people, it's not their agenda versus your agenda. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but rest their authority upon God's word. Even if the truth opponents... Even if, they, even if they are uh, opposed to God's word. The way to deal with the truth opponents is not to out-quarrel them, nor is it only to ignore them. Because in verse 23, Paul says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. He didn't say to never interact with the truth opponents themselves. But he does say to correct them. But the way we correct them must be the way of Jesus. In contrast to being quarrelsome, the Lord's servant must be kind to everyone. 
you find that very easy? Or do you, I mean, are some of you just finding it really easy to be kind to everyone? Maybe some of you are that. But it's, it's really challenging to do that. But as the Lord's servant, that's what he says. You've got to be kind to everyone. In other words, we shouldn't sink down to the level of personal attacks and, and rudeness. It seems like every once in a while that, that's happened over the past several months. Along with being kind, the Lord's servant must be able to teach. So he's not just, your goal is not just to get them to stop inciting quarrels and, and spreading unbiblical teaching. Your, your goal is to teach them truth from God's word. So you're kind to them. You're trying to set a, an environment where you can teach them God's truth. But the truth opponent is likely to resist or reject the teaching and may respond with evil evil words and actions. So rather than returning evil for evil, the Lord's servant must patiently endure evil. He must bear evil without resentment. And that's where it gets exciting. And in being kind, able to teach, and patiently enduring evil, he's to be correcting his opponents with gentleness. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. The requirement to be kind and patiently enduring evil doesn't mean you, you will just tolerate their truth opposition. So being kind and gentle doesn't mean I just tolerate, I just put up with it, I never say anything. You're, you need to correct them. If you, if you care to love them, they need to be corrected. But the fact that they have been creating trouble and maybe responding with evil toward you doesn't mean that you correct them with harshness rather with gentleness. And Paul says that in another place, in Galatians 6.1. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in, in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So in, in addressing people's sinful behaviors or beliefs or reactions to things, you don't just treat them sinfully in return. You, you seek to restore them, and that's always the goal, is to restore them to God's people, to God's truth, with gentleness. You seek to correct them by teaching them God's truth and kindness, patience, and gentleness. Because this is how God dealt with us. It's how he treats us. If he wasn't patient, we would all be toast. We would have no hope for the future. And you correct truth opponents this way because it is ultimately not you who brings them to repentance, but God. God's the one who changes their hearts. That's what he says in the latter part of verse 25. God may perhaps grant them repentance. And that's where we see that repentance is really a gift of God. Repentance is something that God grants. Um, in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, we see that God is kind and forbearing and patient with us, and that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. So God is kind to us not just because he tolerates us indefinitely, because he, he, he knows he can lead us to repentance that way. And in, uh, so he, he grants us the gift of repentance out of his kindness to us. In, in Acts chapter 11, for example, when the Jews heard Peter's report about how the Gentiles had turned to, to Jesus, they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. They recognized that God had granted the Gentiles repentance. They, they knew that this didn't just come out of, of, of Peter's uh, haranguing them or because he was such a skilled speaker. 
he recognized, they recognized that God had granted them repentance that leads to life. And I've, I'm using that word, but what is repentance anyway? What is it? Have you done it lately? Have you tried it? Repentance is not just feeling bad. It's not feeling guilty. It's not, hey, I'm, I feel so, I stink. I'm so lousy. I just feel bad. It's not that. It's not, it's not just making amends, trying to change into a new form of life on your own. Repentance is a change of mind and heart. It's a change of mind and heart that produces a change of behavior. It's a change of mind and heart that produces a change of behavior. It's a change of life. It is turning from unbelief and sin to God and his will. Well, you say, if, is, if repentance is a gift, then why do you even do anything? Does, doesn't God just give it? I mean, does he, doesn't he just give the, if it's a gift? The pattern we see in Scripture is that through the preaching of the Word, the teaching of God's Word, the reading of God's Word, the exhorting according to God's Word, counseling according to, to God's Word, brings truth opponents to repentance. So God uses his truth, often spoken through people, and sometimes just encountered through the reading of God's word. He uses his word to bring people to repentance. So it's not just, he doesn't just drop it on us. It comes through his word. Yet, as we have seen, the actual turning of the heart from unbelief and sin to God and his truth is the gift of God. It's a gift that he gives. That's why Paul says, God may perhaps grant them repentance. See that? God may perhaps grant them, grant them repentance. We should be faithful and earnest in, in our efforts to correct and teach those who oppose God's truth, but our efforts are not guaranteed to bring them to repentance. They're not, they're not guaranteed. We think if we just follow the right techniques say the right words and, and are really kind and, and loving. Or sometimes we think if I'm just harsh enough, I'm hard enough, if I, if I, if I manipulate them enough, they're going to change. So we try being nice, we try being harsh, and, and we, we expect I, I, what's the right formula to get them to change because they're, they're driving me crazy. I need, I need them to change for me. But we can't actually change the heart. Only God can change the heart. So if that's true and they don't repent, do you blame God? Is it his fault? Well, if you look up the dozens of, of uses of the word repent in the scriptures, you see that it's a command that, that sinful people are expected to obey. The plain assumption is that we are responsible to repent. So, for example, Jesus, in his preaching, said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins is, should be proclaimed in, in Christ's name to all nations. And in Revelation, he, he calls five churches in, um, in Asia Minor to, to repent. Or Peter, on the day of Pentecost, uh, the crowd is convicted of, of their putting Jesus up to death, and, and they cry out, What do we do? And Peter says, repent. Paul, in the book of Acts, when he's summarizing, he's, he's, he's saying, this is what I've been teaching everywhere I go. 
what I teach is that people everywhere should repent and turn to God and, and believe in, in Jesus Christ. So the point is Jesus and the apostles' call to repent assumes we are responsible to do so. But at the same time, repentance is a gift of God. So both of these are true at the same time. You can argue and say you can't reconcile those, those two truths, but, or you can yield to the Scriptures. And so what, how, do you, how do you deal with it? I mean, because the Scriptures teach that we are responsible to repent and that repentance is a gift of God, how do we, what does it mean for us? Well, you keep patiently teaching God's Word. You keep patiently making appeals according to God's Word. And, and then you pray for the gift of repentance. You pray and you work. You pray and you, you counsel. You pray and you exhort. You trust God and, and you do all that you can to be an instrument of, of, of truth in their lives. This is both humbling and hopeful. It's humbling because I can't blame God if I don't repent. Well, I asked God to change me and he didn't. No, it doesn't work that way. It's humbling because if I can't take the credit, but if I do repent, hey, I, I, finally, I finally repented. Aren't I great? It's hopeful because people that you would never think are going to repent and, and change and turn to God may. And you, you pray relentlessly that, that they'll receive the gift of repentance. Because God is kind and patient with us in our coming to repentance, we, we can be kind with others in their coming to repentance. But I want them to repent, and I want them to do it now. Sure. And how quickly did it take you to repent? You might know from experience that some things are easier to repent of than others. So, for example, um, I'm going to start walking this way, and someone tell me I'm going the wrong way. Oh, oh, so this must be the right way. That was quick. See how quickly I repented? Now, if I was on a bicycle, and I'm sorry I don't have a bike to, to do it here, for example, but it, I would go through the same process. I would, I would realize I'm, I'm going the wrong direction, and uh, I would turn around, but it takes me longer to slow down, Longer to turn around and longer to get going back in the opposite direction. If I'm in a car, same thing. Uh, I, it takes me longer to slow down, longer to turn around. It's like going down the interstate and you realize you missed the exit. Oh, man. So you've got to go like another one, two, three, five miles to get an exit where you can actually turn around. But eventually you can turn. It just takes you longer than, than it does when you're walking. Or if you're in a speedboat. It takes longer to slow down, longer to get to the turn, longer to turn around, and longer to get going back the opposite direction. Or if you're in a super tanker. How many of you have super tanker sins? You know how that goes, right? So repenting of some sins is like walking. I, I can change direction quickly and, and relatively easily. Repenting of others is like riding a bike. It takes me longer to be convicted and to stop sinning and, and begin living according to God's will. Other sins are harder yet to repent of, either because I've been doing them so long, or they're so entrenched in me, or my heart has gotten so hard. 
Repenting of them is like turning a moving car, a speedboat, or even a supertanker. In the image of a supertanker turning, there's a long time when the supertanker is neither on the old course nor on the new course. So it takes miles for the supertanker to slow down. And it takes a long time for it to get turned around and to get going the opposite direction. So if, if, I'm, if my sin's like a supertanker, I've admitted my sin. My slips and falls have gotten fewer. But there seems to be little progress. I seem to be dead in the water, literally. At that point, I'm, I'm in the turn. Speed will pick up. Godliness will grow, but it will do so slowly as God patiently works with me. So this is why we should be patient with others, because sometimes certain types of behavior, and, and depending on how you've conducted it in your life, just take a long time to undo. If God grants repentance, it will lead us to a knowledge of the truth. If God grants repentance, it will lead us to a knowledge of the truth. Our truth opposing was not just intellectual. We had some idols to repent of in order to embrace God's truth. So God's granting us repentance will give us the knowledge of the truth. It will unblind our our hearts and minds to the truth of the gospel. It will unbind our wills to obedience to the, the word of God. Rather than resisting and rejecting the truth, we receive it, we believe it. It doesn't just mean intellectual grasp of the truth, of the facts of the truth, because the devil has the intellectual grasp of God's word, and he's not ever repenting. So it's, it's a heart reception of God's truth, a heart trust and value of the truth, conforming the life to the truth. Have you ever wondered why people or people you know, or maybe you, uh, seem captive to falsehood or certain sinful be- habits and behaviors. They just seem they're, they're just stuck. There's nothing that, that's dislodging them from that. In spite of all kinds of efforts and appeals, in spite of all kinds of bad consequences that have come out of it, they just won't change. Have you ever seen that? It's because they haven't received the gift of repentance from God leading to a knowledge of the truth. And a good sign that they have come to a knowledge of the truth is they come to their senses. That's what Paul says in verse 26. They return to their right mind. It's in the language is is like returning to sobriety after having been under the influence of intoxicating falsehood. Now that they can see the truth about themselves and the truth of the gospel, they can escape from the devil's snare, from his trap. <clears throat> what is the devil's snare? It is his influences upon the minds and hearts of people so that they don't believe the truth. It is his work through deception of false teaching and and worldly wisdom that makes evil seem good and good seem undesirable, foolish, and restrictive. The devil's snare works like being drunk. You say, well, tell us, Pastor, what does it mean to be drunk? Because none of you have ever experienced that. I need to explain When you're drunk, stoned, high, your senses don't work right. 
your view of reality is, is distorted. You think you're better than you are. You think you're able to do things that you're not. Oh, it's true, really. You say things that are foolish. You believe things that are false. And as a result, you do damage to yourself and to others. And the more frequently you are intoxicated, the more damaging consequences you accumulate and the more likely you are to become addicted. Once you come out from under the influence of you are no longer captive to it, you come to your senses and are able to see and live in reality again. So it is when we are ensnared by the devil, we are under his influence, his control. We are captured by him to do his will, as Paul says. His influence is like alcohol. It doesn't make us do things we aren't willing and wanting to do. The devil can't make us do it. It just distorts our sense of reality, dulls our sense of right and wrong, opening us to to deception so as we choose to do foolish things. To say we were captured by the devil to do his will doesn't mean that he was forcing us or directly controlling us to do his will. It, It means he was able to take advantage of our already sinful inclinations and distort our perception of what is good, what is true, and what is beautiful. It's like Paul says in Ephesians 2, that before we came to Christ, we followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that worked, is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So we just, we just followed him. We didn't think, we were not conscious of doing it. We're not thinking, hey, I'm following the devil, I'm having a grand time. We just did because it came natural for us. This is so important for discipleship in the church. Many of us may not be stirring up controversies and quarrels or spreading false teaching. So thanks for not doing that. But we may well have blind spots. I think we all have blind spots. We may have false beliefs. We may be entrenched in sin patterns. As the Lord's servants... We should not just ignore our our brothers sinning, nor treat them unkindly, nor gossip about them. We should with kindness and patience teach them from God's word, gently correcting them, praying that God may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. They may escape from the devil's snare. The Christian life is one of repenting. Our whole lives, we're constantly turning away from things that are false, and things that are sinful, and turning toward God and his word. It's just standard operating procedure for, for us as believers. It's how we live. We help one another grow in Christ by speaking the truth in love as we walk together alongside each other in repenting. Together we pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace as we ask God to give us the gifts of repentance. Let's pray. Father, I ask that your spirit would take these words that you gave to us 
2,000 years ago that are true for all time and open our hearts to what you want us to do with these truths. I pray, Father, for gifts of repentance for me, for all of us. Things that we're holding on to that are false and and not pleasing to you, things that are keeping us in bondage to not glorifying your name, not living in your truth, things that are doing damage. You want us to walk in freedom, the freedom of Christ through your spirit. So help us, Father, to see what those things are. May we be a community of of loving, truth-telling, truth-speaking, repenting, spirit-led people who are being set free by you to walk uprightly in your sight, to correct one another with love and patience and gentleness. Thank you, Father, for being so patient with us. Thank you that though we, you would have every right to, to judge us now and to, to be done with us, but you ensured that we would have what, all that we need for life and godliness by sending your Son in humanity, your Son who is perfect, and shared being God with you, came as a man, died in our place on the cross, bearing our shame and our guilt and our sin, and turning that, your righteous judgment against them, taking that upon himself and being raised from the dead so that he could give us your Holy Spirit and and give us the gifts of repentance, both once for all and daily. Help us, Father, to continue to repent of things that are keeping us ensnared and keeping us from experiencing the freedom and joy that we have in Jesus. We ask that in his name. Amen.